You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 35. The rabble with them began to crave other food. This is after they had had the manna. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it into a, in a handmill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it on a pot or made it into cakes, and it tasted like something made with olive oil. When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. Moses heard the people of every family wailing, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you have put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their forefathers? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me. Give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you are going to treat me, put me to death right now. If I have found favor in your eyes and do not let me face my own ruin. The Lord said to Moses, Bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there and I will take of the spirit that is on you and put the spirit on them. They will help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. Then you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five or ten or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it because you rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? (coughs) But Moses said, Here I am among 600,000 men on foot, and you say, I will give them meat to eat for a whole month? Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? The Lord answered Moses, Is the Lord's arm too short? You will see whether or not I will say what I will say will come true for you. So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of their elders and had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with them, and he took of the spirit that was on him and put the spirit on the 70 elders. When the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not do so again. However, two men whose name were, names were Eldad and Medad had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but did not go out to the tent. Yet the spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran, ran to, and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? 
I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Then Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It brought them down all around the camp to about three feet above the ground, as far as a day's walk in any direction. All that day and night and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than ten homers. Then they spread them out all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people and he struck them with a severe plague. Therefore, the place was named Kibroth Hatava, because there they buried the people who had craved other food. From Kibroth Hatava, the people traveled to Hazaroth and stayed there. Thus far, our reading from Numbers 11 about that account of the first elders of Israel, or about the elders receiving the Spirit. Now let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll read about the qualifications of elders from Paul's letter to 1 Timothy in preparation from our text this morning from Paul's letter to Titus regarding elders. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or who may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Our text this morning comes from Paul's letter to Titus, the verses 5 through 16. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless. The husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. 
Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I think you're familiar with the office of elder. We have elders, some of them sit up here in these benches every week. Every year we go through the process of nominating and then electing elders. Elders come and visit you in your homes at least once a year. In our church, we're familiar with this office of elder, and that's a good thing because the church of our Lord Jesus Christ is one that is to have elders. As Paul says to Timothy here, I left you to finish what was unfinished, and that was the appointing of elders in every town. The church of our Lord Jesus Christ is to have elders who serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the, the, the way the year works, the time is coming, in fact, when we will be submitting nominations for elders once again. And so it's good that we pay attention to this office this morning, not only for the sake of nominations, but also for the elders who currently serve, and not only for the elders who currently serve, but for every man in the church for whom these qualifications certainly are to be, are to resemble their lives as well. Now the office of elder, as you would have learned from our reading in Numbers 11, is a very old office, goes all the way back to the time of Moses, in fact. And, as we already said, it's a vital part of the New Testament church. It was one of the, the tasks of the Apostle Paul and also of Titus and Timothy to appoint elders for the continuity and for the health and the growth of the church in those early days. And so the process of, of nominating elders, the process of, of receiving elders, electing elders, appointing elders, it's very important for the life of the church. And it involves, of course, more than just picking your good friends or picking the most popular people around or the most successful people. In fact, the Apostle Paul, as he speaks about elders here, he doesn't talk about success in any worldly sense at all. Rather, what he's focused on is character. The character that men show in their relationships, especially with their family, but then also out from there. And is that man himself familiar with, a believer in, and competent with the message of Jesus Christ with the Word of God? And it really is a good thing, actually, that eldership isn't pitched as being something for those who are ambitious in a worldly sense, who are, who are upwardly mobile, who, who seek glamour and, and power and prestige in this world. Because the reality is the office of elder isn't glamorous one bit. And that really comes home strongly as Paul writes to Titus. Titus was to appoint elders on the island of Crete, where the people, as you can see later in the chapter, are called liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. How'd you like to be an elder among that ragtag bunch of people? But of course, we'd fool ourselves if we thought that Crete was the only place where there were godless people around, where there were people who had trouble with their lives, who had 
uh, trouble controlling themselves, who taught false doctrines, all the things that Paul speaks about in the verses 10 through 16 in our text, it doesn't only go on in Crete, it goes on all over the place. Yeah, it seems the, the Cretans were a little rough around the edges, but even though there's a bit more polish to our society, we still live very much in a godless one. It looks a little different, I'm sure, than it did on the island of Crete. But yet, we too live in a godless society. And a godless society is exactly the one that the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is to go out to. It's exactly for those who are lost in sin, who are living in sin, who are facing a future of the wrath and condemnation of God on the last day and everlasting judgment. Those are the very people to whom the gospel of Jesus Christ is to go out. The Lord Jesus Christ established his church on Crete because it was all those liars and gluttons and evil brutes who needed to hear the gospel. That God sent his son as a savior to redeem people who are lost in sin, to renew and restore their lives, to give them an eternity full of hope and joy rather than punishment and condemnation. And so we are here today as well as the church of Jesus Christ to bring this message into a society that is more and more characterized by being godless. And so we need a church and so we need elders. And especially in a godless society where unfaithfulness is so rampant, we need faithful elders. In a godless society, people are watching the church of Jesus Christ. They want to see if there's anything different about this group of people. They want to see if they can hold anything against them. Unfaithfulness among the leaders of God's people becomes an immediate turnoff. And so especially in a godless society, elders must be faithful. Especially in a godless society, elders must be faithful. That's our theme this morning as we consider the text in front of us. An elder must be faithful in his own household. He must be faithful in God's household, and he must be faithful with the message of Jesus Christ. So he needs, first of all, to be faithful in his own household. We begin, then, with these qualifications for an elder that are given in our text. And perhaps we're so familiar with these words here that it doesn't strike us anymore, but it is quite something that the place where it all begins for an elder is in his family. His own family. See, our, our society, our culture, in the workforce, in other places, they don't really care about your family. Has anyone ever listed anything about their family on a resume? You're going out looking for work. You don't tell your future employer, potential employers about your family. My wife respects me. My children respect me. Really, you don't generally include anything on a resume or an application. In in the workforce, in our society, they don't care about your family. They're not interested. It doesn't mean anything for them. But yet, the family is where it all begins and potentially ends as Paul considers the requirements for the office of elder. And so for anyone who aspires to eldership, that's the place to start. 
in your family. We talk about elder training sometimes within our church as, as leaders. We certainly talk about it and we talk about doing more in terms of elder training and hopefully there is more that we can do. There is more certainly to be done. One thing to watch out for in the next little while will be what's been generally called the Office Bearers Conference. That's put on in the Fraser Valley by our churches. But one unfortunate result of that, the, the title of that conference, the Office Bearers Conference, is that it gets populated mostly by men who are already in office. Men who are already elders and deacons. But the preparation for eldership the, the the people who should be at an office bearers conference shouldn't necessarily be those who are already elders and deacons, but it should be every man in the church from young to old. Because elder training doesn't begin when you become an elder. Elder training begins when you become a mature young man. And it grows as you raise a family. And in all your interactions, elder training begins with all aspects of your life, beginning with your family. One more preparatory remark before we get into the, the actual qualifications for elders is that these, as, as Paul listened to Titus, these are requirements for elders. The buck stops here for elders. You need to have these qualifications. If you don't, you're disqualified from being eligible as for being an elder. These are necessary qualifications for elders. But really, you you realize with this list that it's not just elders are, are this, this class of people above the rest. No, these are requirements for all men in the church. These are requirements for all men in the church, traits that all men should reveal in their Christian walk. It's not as though someone can conclude that well, I can take two wives because I don't want to be an elder anyways. No, these are characteristics that all men in the church should strive toward. The only difference is that elders must have these. All men strive toward these traits, but elders must display them. And so these characteristics, this character really begins in the family. He must be, as we begin in verse 6, an elder must be blameless the husband of but one wife. Now, this does not mean that the elder needs to be married. It does mean, however, if he is married, that he is to be married to only one wife. He's to be an example, therefore, of faithful, devoted, and exclusive love. He's to be the husband of but one wife, but notice what it, what Paul says at the beginning of that, an elder must be blameless. That word is connected with everything that follows. He must be blameless as a husband of but one wife. He's not just to be a husband, but he's to be a husband who's above reproach as a husband. He's a husband who loves his wife who strives after the example of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord Jesus Christ loves the church. He's a husband who sacrificially commits himself to the well-being of his wife. He's a husband who provides and cares for his wife. That's according to Ephesians 5. That's what a husband who is above reproach looks like. And an elder 
needs to be such a husband. There's also something about his children listed there. A man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. A man whose children believe. There's a lot of discussion about what that means. Whose children believe. Does that mean that if an elder has children who don't believe, he's disqualified from being an elder? Does it mean that only the children in his household need to believe? Or is it something else entirely? Let me go through a few of the options, and I think it will become quite clear by the end what Paul is getting at here. The first option, which seems to be inescapable from the text, is that all the children of an elder must be believers. But even then, even if you were to take that that direction, a few qualifications would be necessary. First, you have to realize that this is in the context of an elder's household. It's quite possible that Paul's speaking about the children who are at home here, who are still under their father's authority. Also, we should note that this has not been applied strictly throughout Reformed church history, for one. Reformed churches have a long history of accepting men who may have had unbelieving children, as long as it could be shown that those children were not unbelieving through neglect of their fathers. After all, as Reformed believers, we understand that faith is a gift of God. But... As fathers, you have the, you have the calling, the duty to instruct your children in the faith. And so as long as a man was faithful in doing that, then he could become an elder. But there is another option here for what that word believe could be. That word where it says whose children believe, that word believe is translated in other places throughout the New Testament as faithful. It's a word, it's it's tricky that way, it's difficult in, in certain passages that way, that it can mean believe on one hand, in other places it can mean faithful. <clears throat> and so it moves the attitude of children, the disposition of children, into a more general category. And that category does, if we look at it, fit very well with everything else that's said about an elder's children. Here in Titus, for example, Paul seems to qualify his statement by saying the children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. So, wild and disobedient on one hand, the opposite of that is faithful. Not wild and disobedient would be faithful. Also, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, which we read, Paul says that children must obey their father with proper respect. And so if we use what Paul says here in Titus, also what he says in 1 Timothy 3, to understand what Paul's talking about, then it seems that his primary concern is a general pattern of faithfulness among the children of an elder. Children who are well-raised, who are well-taught, who are taught to, to respect their father, and who are under a father who himself is worthy of that respect. And so the children of the elder must be faithful. As Paul is is addressing Titus to appoint elders who are faithful themselves, he points to their children. It's amazing the insight that you can gain about a man 
from his children. Teachers who work in schools are all too aware of this, right? You see, you gain a certain caricature of, of parents from the children are before you. Now, you shouldn't make that caricature into reality, but it happens. As you work with a child every day, you get a certain idea about what the parents are like. And there's a reason for that, because children reflect the parenting that they're given. And so being faithful as a man of God and being faithful as an elder requires, first of all, being faithful as a father in shepherding your children. Now, one little warning along with all of this, this doesn't mean men, elders, that you're to make your children objects that you manipulate in order so that that they look like they're faithful or so that they can make you look better. That's not the purpose of being a faithful father. It's not the purpose of being a faithful elder. Rather, being present in the lives of your children, active, loving, and faithful in a way that reflects the, the faithfulness that God the Father shows with us, is to be our model as we tend and watch after the children under our care. And so the first qualifications For elder, relate to a man's family, to the relationships between himself and his wife and his children. And we move on from there then to consider that the man must be faithful within God's household because as Paul says to Timothy in Timothy 3 verse 5, if a man can't manage his own family, then how can he take care of God's church? And so we move to the more broad group of qualifications. He moves into the realm not just of an elder's household, but of God's household. An overseer, Paul says, is God's steward. He's that servant. Uh, The steward of a household was the servant, among all the other servants, who had so distinguished himself that he's he's given, he's promoted. He's given a position of trust by the master so that he can watch over all that the ma- that belongs to the master he who is faithful with little is given more with which to be faithful so paul moves to more gener- general characteristics then in verse 7 since an overseer is entrusted with god's work he must be but then he goes back to that same word as the general characteristic he must be blameless he must be blameless He must be above reproach. There must not be anything against that man in what areas, in all the ones that follow. And in what follows, I'm going to list with just short comments all the words that Paul gives first in the negative, then in the positive, and then summarize them before we move on to the third point. So here are the five qualities that an elder is to not possess. First of all, he must not be overbearing. That word includes the idea of being arrogant and of being stubborn. The elder is not to be one who is proudly stuck in his ways, but the elder is one who, who must be willing to humble himself and consider what others have to say. So he must not be overbearing. Second, he must not be quick-tempered. He needs to have a long fuse not a short one. He's going to have to deal with all sorts of situations as an elder, which will require patience. And so he needs to display that in his life in general. He's not, thirdly, to be given to drunkenness. 
Drunkenness would show a lack of self-control on the elder's part, which he must not have. Also, as as Paul says uh, in Ephesians, he's to be controlled by the Spirit of God. If you're controlled by alcohol, then that's that's in opposition to being controlled by the Spirit of God. So the elder, of course, must have the Spirit of God, just like those elders in Numbers 11, the account of Moses Elders are given the Spirit of God, and that's displayed in the elder, the potential elder, by the fact that he's not given to drunkenness. Fourth, he's not to be a violent man. The sense of that word is actually, he's not to use violence to oppress others. He He's not to be a bully. A man who uses threats or violence to exert power over others. He doesn't handle power that way. Rather, he handles it in the way that our Lord Jesus Christ himself handled it for the good of others. Finally, on the negative side, he's not to pursue dishonest gain. Essentially, he shouldn't be greedy. His friends, family, business associates in one, in, in first Timothy, Paul says he should have good uh, rapport with outsiders. So other people as well, his business associates should be able to testify that He's more concerned about doing what's right for his employees, for his customers, for his boss, for whomever, than he is concerned about his bottom line. Now, these characteristics are the ones that the elders are to show. And they stand in opposition, of course, to that rebellious group that was trying to seize power in the church. They are, 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 are liars and lazy. They profess to know God, but they deny him. By their works, it says. It becomes clear of those other people in the church that they're not cut out for leadership. In the church of God, character matters. For elders, character matters. And so all those things are are traits, character traits that an elder should not have. But on the other side, there are character traits that an elder ought to have. A blameless character avoids certain traits, but it also displays certain characteristics. In the first place, the elder is to be hospitable. Hospitable. The word literally means, it looks like, if you could understand Greek, it says he's a friend of strangers. He's a friend of strangers. He's hospitable. He's welcoming to strangers and therefore also to friends alike. An elder is to be one who reaches out to strangers, reaches out to people he doesn't know, befriends them, is friendly with them, invites them into his home. This qualification, I sometimes wonder if it's not the most neglected of the elder qualifications, not to say anything against the elders, but I just wonder if we think about this as a qualification for elders, that they must be those who have shown, who have displayed that they are hospitable, that they're willing to open their home to friend and stranger alike and to share the blessings that God has given them in their home with those around them. The elders are to be leaders in opening their homes because all of us as Christians are called to be hospitable. An elder is also to be one who loves what is good. And Paul doesn't clarify what the good is here. In fact, this word is only used here in the New Testament. But 
just in that general sense of, of what is good, the elders to have good habits, sound interests. He's to pursue things that are good and godly, that are upbuilding, that are wholesome, and not other habits or interests in his life. Third, the elder must be self-controlled. Self-controlled. In fact, the emphasis on this word is actually on the mind. He must have control of his mind. He's to be, this word is translated elsewhere as sensible or sober-minded. This man is governed by careful and judicious thinking. He doesn't just latch on to the first argument he hears, but like the book of Proverbs says, he takes time to hear them all, to understand them all. He's a judicious thinker. He's not rash or impetuous in his thinking. Fourth, he's also righteous or upright. That word upright, righteous, is always connected with God's law. His life conforms to the God's law, to God's standard for the lives of his children. Fifth, he's to be holy. He's to be set apart. He's to be different, distinct. He avoids sin and temptation during the course of his life. And he lives his life before the face of God. Finally, he must be disciplined. Through the Holy Spirit, as Paul mentions in Galatians 5 verse 19, where he also uses this word discipline as a fruit of the Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, this man is in control of his own desires. He's not controlled by them. Sex, alcohol, hobbies do not dictate this man's life. Rather, Jesus Christ, through his Holy Spirit, dictates what this man does with his time, with his energy, with all his resources. So all of these are the characteristics that an elder is to display. These are the characteristics of the shepherds of the church, the elders. You recognize, as this is listed, that the elder then is to display the characteristics of the great shepherd, of his boss, of the one who is over him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because these characteristics are simply those that one who serves the Lord Jesus Christ, who has been redeemed and renewed by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, displays in his life. And so we move on also then to the last point, that he's to be faithful in with the message of Jesus Christ. So he holds then to the message of the apostles. As we read in verse 9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. So there are two things that are important for this. First, he must be a good learner. He must be a good learner. He holds firmly to this message of the apostles. He has learned this message for himself and he's taken it to heart. Above all the other traits that an elder must show or below all the other traits, you might say, must be that this man believes in Jesus Christ. That, of course, is assumed. But it's made clear by the fact that he holds firmly to the message that was taught by the apostles. He holds firmly to that message of Jesus Christ. He himself knows that God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world. He himself recognizes himself as a lost sinner who who deserves the eternal condemnation of God. But by the grace that God has shown and by God's powerful work, he believes. And he knows that Jesus Christ is a savior. He latches on to that message. And he knows that that message is now going out into the whole world. 
This man knows the gospel of Jesus Christ. He loves that good news, and he's learned how to apply it to his life, as you can tell by the characteristics above. And second, he must not only learn that message, but that message needs to be tested in him. In Timothy, Paul says that the elder cannot be a recent convert. This needs to be tested in the man. It must be provable by his life over a certain length of time, a long length of time, that this man, in fact, does hold firmly to the gospel. And he does in good times and he does in bad times. It's evident throughout his life. He can be quizzed on these things if necessary. And he can say along with Paul, as he wrote to the Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I've been in hard times. I've been in good times. I've been challenged here and there and other places. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I hold firmly to that message. And I will continue to do that. And so he knows he's been taught the message of scripture. That message of how God created man good, but Man fell into sin, but God promised a Savior. And that Savior has now come in Jesus Christ. And he believes in him. And he looks forward to the end when God will make all things new at the end through the work of Jesus Christ. The elder knows that. But he needs to be able to apply that not only to himself, what it means for my life, but he needs to apply that to others as well. Notice again that these are requirements for the office. They're not bonus features of elders. The requirements. First of all, that he can encourage others. So that he can encourage others by sound doctrine. An elder must be able to encourage others with this message, with the message of the Bible. And so he needs to be compassionate. He needs to be a man who can understand the struggles of others who can understand the struggles that others go through, both in doctrine and life, and equipped with a comprehensive knowledge of, of, of Scripture, a comprehensive knowledge of the work of Jesus Christ, an elder is one who can point others to live their lives in Jesus Christ. He encourages them in that way. In your struggles, go to Jesus Christ. With your, with your plenty, go to Jesus Christ. At the same time, knowing the truth provides you with what you need also to rebuke those who oppose sound doctrine. The one who would be elder not only knows what is sound doctrine, but he has the backbone and the courage to stand up and to take a stand against those who are wrong. That's what holding to that message means. Not only for yourself, but when you recognize that others are straying, you've got the backbone and the courage to tell them as much. In verse 13, Paul tells Titus to issue a sharp rebuke to the Cretans. Why? To strengthen their faith. Because it's no good for them if they wander from the truth. It's no good for them if they live these godless lives. He must rebuke them for their good. A good elder, like a good shepherd, cares for his sheep and does not want them to wander off. And so to bring it all together... You notice that the pattern for an elder, for the under-shepherd, is that of the great shepherd in heaven, Jesus Christ. The character of godly elders is modeled after the character that our Lord Jesus Christ displayed. 
The elder is one to live through, who lives through this message of, of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. An elder is one who himself is united with Jesus Christ in all that he's done. And one who works hard so that others would begin to know and would also grow in the same way. In knowing Jesus Christ and becoming more like him. And all of this, with all these characteristics that we've rattled off this morning, an elder's work is very daunting. That's why we need to remember that elders are merely servants of Jesus Christ. They serve and they represent Jesus Christ to the church. Jesus Christ is the one who will add fruit to their work. They are to be faithful in their work, but Jesus Christ is the one who will work through them and he will supply them with all that they need in order to do their task, whether it's in Crete or it's in Langley. The elder's job is to bring others close to Jesus Christ, his shepherd, because the elder is himself one who knows Jesus. The elder himself is one who loves him, who has been changed by him and who lives to worship his Lord and Savior. Brothers and sisters, in times like ours, these are the kinds of elders that the church of our Lord Jesus Christ needs. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org. Dot org.